Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. Okay, so this one's going to go a little bit differently. I guess we kind of say that about a lot of these. We kind of like to mix it up, right? Just it's, shift on the fly. Shift on the fly. So we got a crew of five here. Jimmy on the mic. We got Mark, Ryan Muckenhern, Eric Barber, and Paul Neese. So pretty much everybody here, y'all know about. They've been on at least once before. We've been here before. Eric has some questions to ask, though. Eric yes. is going on a South Dakota archery backpacking mule deer hunt. Yep. Very soon. Yep. And then later on, following that, it's going to be on a backpacking Montana hunt Yes, with for rifle. Yep. So this time, and I, I don't want to speak too much for you, but I know that you have quite a few questions. You are essentially representing, why don't you go into it? Yeah. So for me, obviously, all my hunting background, just to provide some background here, because like we were joking around before, I represent the people, you know, the people who are like thinking about doing a Western hunt or doing something out, out West that maybe they haven't done before. I have a lot of deer and turkey hunting experience in the Midwest, and I've really never had a hunt where I've had to live out of a tent where I haven't had the necessities of like, oh, I'm going to just, you know, run in and after I get out of the woods, I'm going to go into the house, warm up a microwave meal or whatever and and relax and then wake up again the next morning. So that's going to be different on, you know, the South Dakota trip and the Montana trip like you mentioned. So I I guess a lot of this is just going to be me bouncing questions off you guys because I feel like the guys we got in this room is a good starting point for me to, you know, pick the brains of. And that's been, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on my own, but I really want to bounce a lot of this stuff off you guys and see if some of the calls that I'm making are the right ones, what your guys' thoughts are, and really how someone can get into hunting out west and some of these other out-of-state hunts without feeling like they're going to break the bank doing it. You know, because one of the sayings that I heard actually from the Born and Raised guys is, buy tags, not gear. And that's, I feel like that's an awesome phrase, you know, especially if you want to get into some of this stuff. But obviously to do this, there is certain things that you're going to need. And that's what I'm hoping to bounce off you guys. Mm-hmm. So. And to be clear, Eric won't be asking any questions of me because I'm in arguably perhaps even less of an experienced position than Eric because uh, he's been hunting. He, he's a hunting fanatic here in Wisconsin. But can we kind of recap for those of you who, who might just be being introduced to, to Paul and Ryan and Mark here? Can you guys like go through a quick version of your, your Western hunting, backpack hunting experience that you have that Eric will be able to draw on? Because I think it's pretty interesting. We've got a, a wide swath of experience here. Yeah, this is, this is Paul. I mean, I grew up in the same area. I grew up in the Midwest as a kid, started hunting at a very young age. Really quickly, I sort of realized that I wanted more adventure out of my hunting. I mean, at a young age, in my teens. And then in, in my 20s, I finally basically packed everything up, moved out to Idaho and Montana, bounced around, went to a guide school out there, you know, and then really spent the next 17 years involved in professionally guiding out there. So a lot of experience. Spent a lot of time in Idaho. I was lucky enough to to work for outfitters that, that had territory that contained bighorn sheep. And so I did a lot of hunting for bighorn sheep. That involved a lot of really hardcore backpacking stuff, you know, remote country, good gear, steep stuff. Um, so, yeah, pretty good background in this. I'll say. Ryan? I started, well, similar similar kind of uh, lifestyle as Paul without the extreme, you know, guiding for 17 years and that kind of thing. But uh, growing up, I'm from Minnesota originally and, uh, you know, hunted a lot of small game and waterfowl. Got crazy into waterfowl in my teens and into my early 20s. 
and really more into my teens, hunted whitetails very stereotypically, I guess, for a, a Minnesota hunter. Like you had your firearms opener, and if you were lucky, maybe the weekend thereafter. And that was my big game hunting from the time I was 12 to the time I was about 18. And uh, my first Western hunt was in 2007. I was working at a gun shop, and a customer of mine said, hey, find us a mule deer hunt, and if you find one, you can come with. And so I searched for about eight months, ended up talking to some folks that I, I knew uh, coming into the shop that knew some folks, and uh, connected with a gentleman out of uh, northwestern South Dakota, and we went on a hunt, and it changed my life. From, from that point forward, hunting where there were no trees and only sky and very large buttes and bluffs and mesas and plateaus, uh, chasing mule deer specifically, I just can't look at a whitetail the same way again. And so now I've, I've hunted a lot of the West, not as much as Paul, but I've hunted Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, um, Nebraska. Uh, I'm, I'm just crazy about it. It's consuming. Right on, man. Yep. You get bit. Oh, yeah. Hard. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's an easy, easy thing to get yeah. bit by once you do it, for sure. So this is Mark. I grew up in western Washington, uh, chasing Columbia blacktail and Roosevelt elk. So those were the, the two things that we hunted predominantly, uh, mostly with the rifle. In that state, you have to choose your weapon, if you will. So if you're, if you're going to bow hunt deer, then you can't rifle hunt deer. So uh, my entire family rifle hunted. So, you know, that, that was definitely a big part of, of what we did as a family. So um, mostly rifle hunted when I lived there. Did some waterfowling, a fair amount of turkey hunting. Once we got turkeys, we didn't always have turkeys. And then kind of the, the turkey boom hit and, you know, they were a mystery for a while for sure and, and got into that as well. Kind of the reverse story from you guys, I kind of started out about as far west as you can get and, and migrated east, you know, predominantly with work. But yeah, for me, like hunting whitetails was like a new thing. You know, when I moved to Nebraska, I was working for Cabela's out there. And, you know, that was the first time I jumped up in a tree was when I went out there, you know, post-college. But yeah, as far as, you know, quote unquote experience, yeah, I enjoy hunting a variety of things. So I like, uh, you know, the places it takes me, you know, the landscapes you get to yeah. see, learning more about those animals uh, and where they live. And so by that, you know, I've traveled fairly extensively throughout the West. Like I said, you know, everything from, you know, blacktails in Western Washington or coos deer in Arizona or, you know, hunted Alaska several times. So just, uh, yeah, like I said, it's easy to get bit. And the more things you learn about, the more things you want to do and the more places you want to go and see and try hunting different ways. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we've got got Eric pretty fanned up now. He's ready to go. (laughs) So this is who you got to draw from. So I see you got a big list of questions there. Let's... Let's get her going. Absolutely. So, like, yeah, I mean, kind of like we touched on, there's obviously a financial investment in this stuff, especially when you're get you're brand new to it. So, like, to provide some perspective, I feel like in the Midwest, out east, if you're just whitetail tree stand hunting, you can kind of get by with, um, let's say, your fleece gear that you bought at whatever retailer for fifty percent off. It's affordable, not very technical apparel. And now on the other side of the spectrum there, once you start going out west, you know, you're looking at a little bit more technical clothing stuff that is going to work for you a little bit more than just, stay, you know, say throwing on all your favorite sweatshirts and sitting in a tree stand to beat the cold on a November day. So, for example, like, you know, looking into next week when I'm out in South Dakota, we're looking at temperatures probably in the 90s, um, being able to stay, stay cool and, uh, you know, also stay dry while, while doing that. And just being able to avoid like heat fatigue and all that stuff. So I guess, and there's obviously a lot of other things in here like tents and hydration systems and all that other stuff that I kind of want to get into. But 
you know, I guess, how do you guys kind of identify stuff that would be really nice to have and stuff that you really do need before you dive into some of these, like, Western hunting situations? I'll grab one here, because not that long ago I had started doing this. So my first hunt out west, I remember I was, I was driving a full-size Silverado uh, with a six-foot-eight bed, and it was completely full to, like, the topper, me and, and another guy, full, full tilt. And so every parka, sweatshirt, <laughs> uh, you, you name it, like, I had this, this thought that I was going to go hunt on the ice planet Hoth. And then, like, <laughs> and then, and then I was, like, in a die of exposure. And so, like, when I started when I started chasing western deer and antelope, it was I was wearing, like, my duck camo. And, and so you had mentioned something that fellas that we had on here earlier said, you know, buy tags, not gear. At that point in time, I was making no money. I was going to school. I sustained on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, quite literally, peanut <laughs> butter and jelly sandwiches while in the field, um, and did not have good gear per se or per standard now. So I think it is important. I, if I could go back in time, I would pack a quarter of what I packed. That, that was the biggest thing. And, and just, you know, now as I look at it and, and my gear has gotten more technical as you're piecemealing it together, I found, you know, merino base layers are very important. Puffy jacket, which Mark Boardman turned me on to, I, I was adamant I was never going to wear a puffy jacket. And now I, I just scour the REI and uh, backcountry bargain bins for puffy jackets. Quite possibly the one of the most important pieces of kit you can have. With no you, in my doubt. Opinion. No doubt. Um, and good boots. That was one thing the first hunt that I went on I did not have mm-hmm. was good boots. Uh, huge, paramount. So on, on the clothing side of thing, things, and people ask me too, they're like, well, I need to go out and buy, you know, X brand in full quantity. Like I've got to buy their full lineup. Right. And, and you're looking at with some of these more, uh, you know, well-reputed technical clothing brands, you're looking at thousands of dollars of outerwear. Mm-hmm. And to the point that we're making here, you don't have to do it. You don't have to spend all of that money at one point in time. And, and I don't recommend it. I can't afford to, so I don't. It's piecemealing here and there. And, and it's, it's repurposing a lot of gear that a lot of folks would not, or would not necessarily assume would be kosher for hunting, like a lot of mountaineering stuff, a lot of alpine gear, uh, a lot of ski gear, uh, stuff like that. It works really well too. But, but lighter weight, technical garments, merino wool, uh, very breathable stuff, a lot of down, and then layering systems. That was one thing that, as a, a Midwestern hunter, I never grasped the concept of was layering systems mm-hmm. until I started hunting the West. So like you said, you're throwing on you know the heaviest of heavy that you can right. put on, and you're going to go sit in a tree stand and freeze for six hours. Mm-hmm. When you're in this Western landscape, you're almost constantly in motion, or you're yep. in motion a lot more than you would be when you're affixed to a tree. So... Yeah, layering systems, super, super important. Uh, and I've gone to lighter and lighter and lighter weight gear uh, seemingly every season to, mm-hmm. to just try to get that down. Because when you're, when you're cold, you're going to throw that puffy on. Um, when you're moving, you're going to take it all off. So what you've got written down, you know, merino, puffies, stuff like that, paramount. But yeah. good, good footwear is, is also really, really important. So um, when you say you brought too much gear the first time you oh, went yes. out there, I mean, do you just go out there now on like just one – outfit and just keep that on the entire time? Or? Uh, yes. Good question. So working with Paul and Mark and your brother Dave and, and a lot of the other guys here that do a lot of this, it's kind of fun because we talk about how much our packs weigh. It's, I'm not going to say it's like a contest to see who can get the lightest pack, but it is something that you strive for. Right. Because it's, you, it's just a race for second. Yeah. Dave. Right. <laughs> correct. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Stinking correct. engineers. But it, it is something where like we, I think we have the tendency to overkit ourselves. 
And it's a hindrance. It really is. You just weigh yourself down. You expend more calories. You end up being more uncomfortable. You have more stuff to carry and keep track of. So yes, like when I go out there now, my first hunt was, I think, a total of nine days counting travel. And I want to say I had 14 pairs of socks with. And that is completely unacceptable. 14 pairs of socks is pretty much the same size as about most of the outerwear that I carry with now. So I'm big on, there's a company called Darn Tough. I wear their socks. So I, I bring two or three pairs, depending on how long the hunt is. Uh, and just rotate those through. Um, merino underwear, that's a thing. It's important. A couple pairs of those, don't feel like going crazy on that. And just leaving the bulk of all the other stuff at home. You don't need to bring four hunting knives. You can bring one. That's, yeah, there's the, the problem is there's a, there's a really strong tendency when, you, when you're sort of packing for a trip yeah. and you want to try to, you start to think of all the eventualities out there and you yeah. start to try, well, I want to cover this and I want to cover this yeah. and I want to cover I pack that. pack for vacations that it's way. It's really easy to do. <laughs> yeah. You I do. always pack way yeah. too much for vacations because oh, yeah. right. inevitably you, you fall in the water or spill yep. ketchup on your shirt. Right. right. I, I do always like to ask myself the question though, like, because if you don't have the, the ability to get back to civilization, if you do need something or, or if it's extremely inconvenient, sometimes I like to ask myself, so if I needed this when I'm out there, how much would I pay for it when I was on the mountain? Yeah. And oftentimes that can assist in answering my question. And, and part of that is, do I want to spend the money on this piece of gear? Or also, you know, do I want do I want to bring it with me in in the event I need it? Like I said, you got to be you got to balance that right because you can't bring the kitchen sink. It is going on your back. Yep. You know, potentially if you are successful and get an animal, you need you know room in your pack to at least get that first load out. Yeah, it take it takes you know it takes a willingness to to say that I don't you know I don't need this. I'm probably not going to need that. And one of the things. You know, of course, this is up front a little tough for you, Eric. But after you've after you've done this a number of times, you start to realize. You look at when you when you at the end of a hunt, and you look at the gear that you actually used and mm-hmm. didn't use. And after a while, you start to see. You know, I brought this thing along three times. I've never used it. Yep. Boom, it's out of there. Yep. But you know, until you've done that a little bit, it's a little tough. You know, mm-hmm. you haven't been out there. You know, and, and seen what yep. actually is going to come in handy and not handy. But that's you know kind of what we're doing here a little bit talking through it. But, right. Uh, you know you you do after you've carried something a lot of times you realize no I don't need that thing anymore. Yeah. Packs yeah. of batteries are one. <laughs> uh, I think everybody's multiple got multiple knives. Oh yeah. yeah. I think everybody's got a couple of cool flashlights and headlamps and uh, illumination devices. And I can remember when I when I first went on this hunt, I was using a pack that was around eighteen hundred and fifty cubic inches, and that thing was so full it was going to explode. And I thought, or I think back now, like, let's say I had to pack out a, a deer on that first hunt that I went on. Like, what would I have done? Would I have just done a pocket dump of all my stuff out on the prairie and, like, then butchered the deer and quartered it and put it in my pack and walked back and done this? But packs of batteries. I would bring multiple packs of batteries. Completely unacceptable. Like, you don't need them. Get a good, efficient light. You don't need a million lumen light. You need a light that you can navigate with mm-hmm. and that you can signal with. And you know, if you look at an LED light and how bright they are, you can see them from a long, long ways away. Some, you know, redundancy can be important, but a lot of times you, you overdo it. The tendency yeah. is to overdo it. I'll, yeah. I'll talk yeah. about redundancy. Bring two headlamps. Yeah. Yep. Bring two headlamps, have them both gassed up with fresh batteries. Mm-hmm. Have your secondary headlamp convenient because if you're using your headlamp and the batteries go out or it goes down for any reason, it will be dark out and it will be difficult to find your secondary headlamp if it's buried somewhere. <laughs> yep. So you want to keep that handy. You want to have it gassed up. 
And I would also suggest bringing some extra batteries because you're going to want to load your first headlamp up to. Yeah. Not, I mean, we're not talking pounds of batteries, Don't Ryan, bring pounds. <laughs> no, no. I still probably have most of those unopened packages of Energizers yeah. somewhere. Well, and you brought up a good point with the Merino stuff because that was one debate, and, and I ended up going with Merino stuff. Yep. But I was doing a lot of research, you know, probably two months ago about, like, Merino versus synthetic and pros and cons. And basically what I've gathered from some of that, some of my research is Merino is going to be naturally odor-resistant which is very important. Advantageous when you're hunting. Yep, exactly. But one of the cons that I saw to it is it might not dry as fast as some of the the synthetics out there. And that's true. I I think one merit to merino and wool garment in general, though, is that when you do get wet, and you will get wet eventually, it it just seems like you can be wet with it on and not as uncomfortable as when you're wearing a synthetic. Yeah, Um, you'll be be a little warmer, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it it might not have that natural, or I shouldn't say natural, but unnatural drying capability, but it's you're still sustainable when you're wet. Right, right. And and what I found, and especially being a predator hunter in West and Midwest, calling coyotes, and if you're doing it mobile and you're moving around a lot in the winter, you know, when you're moving through the snow, you get very warm, you get very sweaty. But then when you sit for 45 minutes to an hour on a coyote call or a, a bobcat call, you, you know, you, you begin to freeze if you're just soaking wet with sweat. It seems to me, it's been my experience that the Merino and similar wool blends uh, help mitigate that considerably. They pull that moisture off your body and they get it to, towards the outer layers of yeah. the garment. And yeah. if, you, if you multi-layer yeah. Merino, it, it is a very strange effect. The first yeah. time I wore Merino garments, I looked back and I said, how did I ever hunt Yep, totally. Before. Yeah. I and mean, there's another part to this to remember, though, too. And one of the things you learn, Eric, when you start hunting in the mountains, you avoid sweating up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you very much avoid that. Yeah. So if you, you know, for example, we would, when we hunted sheep, many times you would have a, a long, hard climb early in the day. Mm-hmm. And you paced yourself going up. As soon as I felt I was starting to sweat, I would either stop or peel out of yep. garments. And literally, there were times I'd be in. 20 degree temperatures, climbing a mountain down to a, a, a thin t-shirt, just mm-hmm. as, as quickly I w- as I sweat up, I peel layers off and mm-hmm. take them off. And so you really, you learn to try to avoid that yeah. as much as you can. It's in, just you know, to stay the thing, dry. Yeah, to stay dry. I mean, for, you know, what Ryan's talking about, allowing yourself to get soaked in sweat, that's a deal breaker. I mean, you just don't do that. You peel off, you know, to me, wearing like the, the merino wool stuff, where I would be worried is underwear, t-shirts, that sort of thing is they do take longer to dry, but usually what you can do is you rotate and, and it's a matter of trying to wash something like that sometime in the course of your hunt. You know, and you might take your underwear off, change your underwear, wash them in a stream or something, and hang them on a branch, and they do take a while to dry yeah. when you're doing that. But yeah, try to, you know, keep that in mind. If you're if you're out in that kind of country and you're traveling light and, you, you know, you've got a small tent, you know, you mm-hmm. don't have a ton of survival gear with you, is don't don't get sweated up. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you know really important. I mean, that's a, a safety thing as yeah. much as it yeah. oh, is yeah. a comfort thing, All you right. know. But looping back to the merino, we talked about the the odor control of merino is actually astonishing. It's, yeah, like yep. I've I've mm-hmm. come off like a long hunt. And maybe I freaking unload all my stuff <laughs> in, in my yeah. my room, let it set for a day or whatever. You kind of come back and you know, like you said, give it give it the sniff test. And there's been times I'm like, did I wash this? And yeah. I, I don't even know because yeah. like it, it's uh, it's pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, to your point, Paul, with getting sweated up, I think that that's one thing that when you're hunting with somebody, it can be. I think people have a tendency to want to go 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 go, 
and they kind of have, you know, they're, like I said, that, that animal is over there, and it's like, nope, we got to move. And man, I, I do, I agree with you 100%, Paul. It is important to make the time to slow down, to peel back those layers. Like we're talking about, these Western hunts, they're very dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. You're, you're moving a lot, you're stopping a lot. And sometimes you're moving a lot and then stopping. You know, and if you get to a glassing knob or something like that, you're going you're gonna to be stopped for a significant amount of time. So it's really important to, to slow down and take the time to take those layers off and not get sweated up because when you get to that glassing knob, Generally, it's going to be a little bit more windswept. It's going to be oh, open. Usually, it's going to be yeah. higher up. Yep. And when you, when you, you know, you start to top out and you get on top of a ridge or, you know, like you said, a glassing spot, usually you're you're putting stuff on just about exposed. as fast mm-hmm. as you put it off coming mm-hmm. up, you know. And so it is kind of funny sometimes. I mean, you feel like you're doing this constant changing and, you know, pulling gear off and on. But it makes a huge difference. Yeah. You know, when you get up there and your underlayers are still dry and then you pull your puffy on and your rain jacket over your puffy, mm-hmm. you're feeling pretty good. You know, oh, you're yeah. warm, you're ready, you're not, you know, you're not, you know, with, with clients a lot of times guiding, I really had to watch that. And, and guys many times when they're fresh to that country, they're really not familiar with that. They're typically not in as good a shape. And so you have to you have to force guys to pace themselves and ask them if they're starting to get sweated up or if mm-hmm. you can see they're getting sweated up. Just you know, stop, yeah. and give them a break, tell them to peel something off, and yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And talking about yeah. that puffy, I mean that's something to just keep handy. Like I keep that in the top lid of my backpack or an open side pocket mm-hmm. if it's not if it's not you know raining or going to be subjected to extensive moisture in any way. Just because that is just such a lightweight on and off piece that. You know, you can you can cool off really quick by taking it off, yeah. and you can warm up really quick by putting it on. Right. So mm-hmm. keeping right. that so handy is paramount. We've talked about underwear, puffies, base layers. I've heard rain jacket thrown around. Boots. What's what boots? What what's the typical like? If you did a slice the dude in half so you could see the layers, what would that diagram look like? You've got under like, how does it work? From very base, like what is touching your skin to what's on the yeah. outside, what do you typically take? I'll I'll give mine, and then I'd actually be curious to in, get in order. Get from, yours from skin to top. Mm-hmm. So from skin to top, for me, I'll wear a long sleeve, and this is I guess this is me going on a hunt where I feel like I might encounter a variety of conditions. Right? Yeah, Anything. you have to be kind of careful to pin down exactly what type of hunt we're talking about. You right. Know, Eric, Eric yeah. going out 90 degrees in South Dakota is yeah. going to be a little different from a late-season Montana fair. elk hunt. Totally. Right, right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So this would be, I'd say, like uh, where you, you might expect to get a little bit of everything. Yeah. Right. Which is exactly what I'm expecting on that November Montana hunt. Yep. I mean, yep. I'm, I'm yep. basically what and, I've been and leaning, told. Leaning towards the cold or yep. <laughs> the spectrum. Exactly. There. I've been told to prepare <laughs> yeah. from every, anything yeah. from like single digits up to 70 degrees. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, and then one thing to remember also, though, if you are even on a warm weather hunt, those mornings are cold and those yeah. evenings are yeah. cold. Yeah, we were just out yeah. in Wyoming and it was chilly yeah. in the morning. Yeah, you wanted to be bundled up a little yeah. bit, you know, and then all of a sudden the sun started hitting you and again, you're freaking stripping down basically nothing. You yeah. Know? So for me, I'd start with a merino long sleeve top either just a you know regular or even a quarter zip. And maybe I, I might even be a little extreme compared to you guys, but over that, I'll put a Merino t-shirt. And that gives me the ability, depending on where I'm at in that layering system, you know, I may eventually pull that long sleever off yeah. and just be in the tee. Over that uh, Merino t-shirt, I'll have some sort of vest, either a lightweight puffy or I guess like a, a soft shell vest. And then after that, I'll either have a soft shell. Well, after that, I might have my hooded puffy 
and then soft shell jacket with a hood or my rain my rain layer with a hood and that'd be my top so that okay so not like, including gloves like a shirt of some sort you do the long sleeve with a short sleeve on top of it yep followed by a vest followed by a puffier rain jacket mm-hmm. okay yeah, Mark. You know, when Mark's going cold, there he's when yeah. you're putting a vest and then a puffy on top. That's that's you're anticipating cold weather, right? You know, it's mine would be very similar to Mark's. I mean, generally a you know a light layer of uh, merino wool, depending on the weather. You know, maybe a light soft shell or a fleece top. If it's cold, then the then the puffy on top of that, and then usually a you know an outer shell rain jacket of some type. One pair of decent socks probably a lighter technical pair of pants and then again if it's if it's windy or cold you have rain gear to break that over the top yeah yeah and merino wool isn't just for the cold right so for those who maybe no, aren't it's, a, it's yet, pretty yeah. good I mean, when, you hear, stuff. when you hear yeah. wool it's it's it sounds like it's something for the cold weather yeah. but i've worn yep. it too in the warm weather and it's yeah it's and if, if someone you know if they if they haven't seen or handled merino the thing is it's it's very thin it's it's very soft it's not it's not what people may think of as kind of old mm. school thick heavy scratchy wool it's very yeah. different from that and you can, you know, you can wear it in, in very warm weather. It's You can get it to very thin layers. Mm-hmm. I think the only beef I've had with Merino is is you do have to be aware it's fairly fragile stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it is it is quite easy to tear it up. And, and if you're, you know, if you're wearing layers and you get down to peeling everything off but a very thin Merino shirt, they shred up really easily. Yeah. So, you, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going through brush and that kind of thing, be aware of that, that, you know, it uh, it's easy to rip it up. Okay. I would say that everything mentioned is exactly what I do as well. But I do want to talk about rain layer. So I, I think a lot of people will pack gear like for a particular event of weather. Like, oh, it's going to snow, so I'm going to have a parka. Or it's going to rain, so I'm going to have a rain jacket. Or it's, you know, this, that, or the other thing. But like a good rain shell uh, is non-insulated. Uh, it's breathable. It's a two and a half to three and a half layer garment. But it, it does a lot for you as a windbreaker. It does a lot for you as a you know yep. a fairly durable shell. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is one of the most critical pieces yep. of gear to have. Yep. Absolutely the most critical. I you know when we got down to kind of checking guys for what they're bringing with them on a hunt, and maybe we're going up and it's just a bluebird day, mm-hmm. beautiful out, warm temperatures, sun is shining. Number one question we always ask guys is, have you got your rain gear with you? Right. You know, just very, very important. It, it serves so many roles. You know, thinking of it as just rain protection is you're you're missing half the value yeah. of that. And, yeah. and obviously, you know, being dry is paramount. And as Mark said earlier, it is a safety concern because if you do get wet and it gets cold, man is not adapted to the cold. We are a hairless creature. Uh, and we don't we don't do well when it's you know when you're soaking wet and it's blowing wind and the temperatures are below forty. Yeah. Um, you know that can turn a fairly good day into a seriously bad day. I had that happen in two thousand and uh, it would have been two thousand and nine. I was on uh, kind of a mid October antelope hunt in South Dakota, and same thing, bluebird day, beautiful out. I want to say that we were glassing in t-shirts. And so I set off with my hunting partner. We we're going to chase down a herd of antelope that we had seen at about a mile, mile and a quarter. And we had worked this, this group of antelope uh, from about, I'm going to say, 11 or noon and finally caught up to them about 4 p.m. And so mid-October, sundown or dark in South Dakota is, pr- I don't know, probably late five, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere in there. Uh, half five, as our British colleagues say. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Well, I went out there. I had like a, a shell, but not a technical shell. I had a wool shirt, 
like kind of a, a, a light to medium weight wool shirt and a cotton t-shirt underneath. And I thought like I was completely fine and totally adequate. And when we had gotten out there, we found this group of antelope, ended up taking a buck and uh, sent my hunting partner back for the truck. Long story short, he went the wrong direction. He went right instead of left. And uh, I did not see him again for about seven hours. Uh, In that time, uh, while I was inappropriately and adequately equipped, the temperature had gone from, like I said, around 70, upper 60s to 70 during the sunlight hours to right around 30, but the wind was probably right around 30 as well. So that put me, you know, with a wind chill right around zero. And that was, that I was so miserable. I was like seriously contemplating like, what am I going to do? And uh, I, I think I had five rifle cartridges, a flashlight with no batteries, uh, a dead GPS. And I think I had a Bic lighter in my pocket and no hydration and no snacks because I thought, oh, this will be a quick one and done thing. Uh, oh yeah. Rule number three, don't ever set your pack down. I just always take it with you. Yeah. It's like, yes. always take your pack yeah. with you. Unless it's like within line of sight of you. Yeah. Your pack always goes with Even you. Even then, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and uh, line of sight could be across the canyon. Yeah, yeah that's, true. that's line, true. Line of sight goes from out of sight really quickly. If, yeah. if, you, can, if you can underhand a rock at your pack, you're yeah. probably close enough. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I sat on this rock uh, in absolute darkness. It was a new moon too. I remember that. It was just terrible and ended up, ended up finding my way back to the truck and he was facing the other direction and, and didn't have the headlights on and just happened to see uh, a light from inside my cab from quite a distance away. And I was frozen. Like I was looking at it now, I was like probably getting a little pre-hypothermic. Yep. Holy crap. And again, it was like 70 degrees that day. Mm-hmm. It was, yep. it, but it, it happens really quick, especially in the, in the Western States and the desert States too. So never uh, assume that the weather is going to be okay. Had I a, good rain shell that would have been a phenomenal wind blocker, I would assure you I would have been quite a bit more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, did not have that though. So the rain shell means more than rain. It means yeah. wind. It means uh, even cold. It's it's a decent insulator, you know, just keeping heat trapped underneath that layer. So yeah, learn that lesson the hard way. Yeah. Even like you said, I mean, we're talking about these hunts being dynamic and they're dynamic, you know, in the, in the way maybe which you move through them, but that weather is equally dynamic and I mean, there might be some exceptions, but just I'm just re- reiterating, you know, what you're saying. And the weight of your rain gear might change. Like maybe mm-hmm. for, you know, if you're going on a sheep hunt, you might want like a three-layer rain shell. And if you're, you know, just packing it in the event you may end up needing it, then, you know, it's nice to have, you know, a lighter weight, thinner. Like, it's like hey, you know, this, is, this fits in the bottom of my pack. It's not like I'm not making a huge commitment to bringing it with me, but, yeah. you know. If I do need it, it's going to be a big asset. Same, same with the puppy, puffy. You can bring a puppy with you too if you want. <laughs> um, everybody likes puppies. Yeah, but uh, I mean, they're just they're just so so. Yeah, and there's you know there are there there are different levels of rain gear too. The rain gear that you would use in in say the Rockies are very different from the rain gear you might take to Alaska or right. Washington or your part of the country. Typically, when you get rain in the Rockies, it it doesn't last a long time for the most part. So you can usually get by with lighter rain gear. Um, mm-hmm. I would definitely take heavier rain gear to Alaska yep. than I would hunting in, in Idaho or Montana, though. Well, and when I've hunted in Alaska, I mean, oftentimes my outer layer is my waterproof layer, right. and it does not, by and large, come off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, might, I might adjust, yeah. you know, some of my inner stuff, but that stuff is, you know, my main pant is, you know, a heavier waterproof pant. My main jacket yep. 
you know, is a heavier waterproof jacket. And, you know, if you're totally in the backcountry, then I probably wouldn't bring the soft shell. I would just right. layer up underneath that and have all my insulation be in that, in that, right. and that right. heavier jacket also provides, you know, good protection from, from the wind and, and the yeah. rain as well. Yep. And some insulation, yep. but can I bump in Eric and ask a question? Yeah. Maybe yeah. I know you're, I know we're asking cause you're about to go on this trip, but I've been curious because we're talking about water, I guess, protection from the ankles up. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you cross through like a stream or when, you know, you're walking through really wet, muddy, high grass? Like, is that where, like, Mark, you were breaking in some boots, which, mm-hmm. by the way, I've heard you should break in your boots before. I Actually, yep. you should break in any shoes before you use them in a big-time situation. But... You you put beeswax on them. Does that have to do with water, or is that just to protect the leather? Or is there anything? No, I mean that's true. You know, I was treating the leather on those boots to mm-hmm. you know make them waterproof, and it was uh, I can't remember the wet name feet of it. suck. Wet Be- feet beeswax suck. Beeswax is good stuff. That yeah. Really yeah. Works. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was funny when Paul and I were just talking about that the other day, and you were talking about beeswax and whatever I thought I had that I was treating my boots actually was it was actually a bees whatever the base right. is beeswax the, the product, you know yeah. and yep. it makes them look yep. real nice too. Yeah. But, you know, definitely, you know, prevents that water from penetrating the boot and yeah. hopefully not making it weigh, you know, A, being uncomfortable and also not weighing 500 pounds, you know, right, every time right. you try to take a step. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump back to Jimmy's question, too, and, and some of the things you can do, you know, you, you, you really do want to try to keep your feet as dry as possible. So mm-hmm. pre-treating your boots is very helpful. When you have to cross water in streams, you know, I, w- I will definitely do what I can to, to not get my boots wet. You know, and, and many times it's easier just to take your boots off and socks off and, and wade across, find mm-hmm. a place that you can get across. If you've treated your boots really well, I mean, you can you can use gaiters, which, yep. which will help yep. a lot. They'll shed water. If you're going through wet brush, gaiters are a really helpful thing. And you can, you know, if, if you're fast and you, you know, you can see a short, shallow stream, you can sprint across them with boots and gaiters over the top, and you pretty much keep water out of your boots. But I mean, I usually I'm I'm pretty picky about that. I'll try to keep my boots as dry as possible, mm-hmm. and you know, if, if I have to fight, go out of my way to find a way around water without going through it, I'll do that. You know, crossing logs is something guys do. I'll throw that in quickly, just as an aside. If you're out backpacking, especially if you're solo, crossing logs to get over streams very tricky proposition. You want to be really really careful about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's a it's a great way to kill yourself if you have a heavy pack on and you get literally up turtling <laughs> mm-hmm. upside down. Yeah, in there. yeah. So that's uh, when I'm solo. I am incredibly wary of crossing logs. I usually will go out of my way to avoid doing that. Would you say the same goes for like, like stones? Maybe in a like wet stones. Is that kind of asking? You could, to slip yeah, yeah. Stuff? I mean, obviously, if you slip, if it's a larger stone and you slip on it, and you you know, even if you do something like roll your ankle, mm-hmm. um, that's a deal breaker. Though, if it you know, if it cripples you up and you can't go anyplace, so I'd yeah. be really worried about that. Yeah, like smaller stones are fine, but. Trying to trying to go a stepping stone on big stones across right. a stream that's that's a recipe for disaster there. So mm-hmm. that actually be brings really up careful. that that brings up one thing I did want to talk about is how so like there, I've heard of a couple things like in reach you know to stay <laughs> connected while you're out there and, and other methods because that's one thing I think you know even even right here in the Midwest when I'm you know hunting out of a tree stand I'm packing in a tree stand you're hanging a tree stand in the dark that's one thing that I've Got, just gotten in the habit of that my wife has literally required me to do when I get to the base of the tree center text said is like okay here and then once I'm set up it's like okay I'm good to go because those are the two points where it's the most yeah. risky tree stands get a lot of people so so I guess on the flip side of that 
I'm assuming, which thankfully in a lot of areas in Wisconsin, I have cell service. Now we're talking about a canyon in South Dakota or river basin in Montana. Much better odds you're not going to have cell service. Right. So what what, what do you guys recommend as far as that is concerned? That Garmin and Reach is a great product. I use that. Okay. Um, they're they're not tremendously expensive. They do allow you to send and receive texts uh, oh, via okay. sat phone, so you don't need any cell coverage at all. Yeah. So they're they're actually they they work quite well. Um, okay. They actually came out with a new one this year called the Mini, which is very small okay. and light, and I think it retails sort of in the mid three hundred dollar price okay. range. The one catch with those is you do have to sign up for a you know a subscription service, so you right. are you are going to pay on a you know a monthly yeah. or yearly plan for that satellite service. But they are, I mean, they're they're great peace of mind. They right. have the ability to, with a single button push, to to call for help. Yeah. So if you you end up in a bad spot, as long as you can push that button, you know you'll get search and rescue eventually to come looking for you. And and this is. Possibly just my opinion, but I'm sure a lot of you guys would agree. I mean, I look at something like an inReach, that's life insurance. Just like a tree stand hunter, if you're not hunting without a with a, without a safety yeah. harness, yep. you know, that's your life insurance as a tree stand hunter. So yeah. I guess that's easier to justify. It's good. Like yeah. I, you know, I've, I spent a lot of years when I was guiding, we did a lot of, for example, you know, on a sheep hunt, we might pre-scout a sheep hunt before mm-hmm. a client got out there. And so I might be out on a typical five or six day pre, pre-scout looking in different areas for sheep and I'd be solo by myself. And, it, you know, at that time I had very little money. I didn't make a lot of money. So buying a, a sat phone was, yeah. or, or a, you know, something like the inReach was just not an option for right. me. The biggest thing really to remember doing that stuff is is what's you know what's between your ears is kind of mm-hmm. the biggest thing. And I would always when I do that kind of thing and if I'm out solo, when I left that trailhead or left my truck or whatever it was, I almost paused for like a minute and and sort of mentally like reset a gear in my head mm. to go into that mode of being solo out in the woods yeah. and thinking about trying to think about things a little bit differently. And move a little bit slower and be aware that that anytime you crossed a stream or you climbed some rocks or whatever it was, that you were in a position that, you know, nobody was probably going to be able to come and get you. Yep. And yep. so you thought about every single thing that you did yep. in, with that light on. And you'd be surprised. I mean, you can, if you keep that mindset... Yeah. You'll do yourself a ton of good, you know. Right. Hopefully, you'll you'll never have to use that that rescue button on an in reach. Mm-hmm. But it, it really was. I mean, I still I do that today when I'm out. It's just like it, it's a momentary pause, right. just a mental, a quick like a mental reset. Yeah, and you know well, everything from you know stuff like what I would start to do is when I went into areas solo is I would be careful to, for example, you know, if I saw like a sandy area, I would go out of my way to sort of leave track sometimes and just just provide, mm-hmm. you know, places. And I'd sort of, I think about taking routes that if someone were looking for me at some point, that it would be an intuitive route that they might think somebody would be found, and not to go off, you know, into really obscure, yeah, difficult places, unless I had to do that, you know, unless right. it was part of where I was going to look for animals. Yeah, that. A, would yeah, you, yeah. if you had to go off, would you leave... Some sort of tracks like you were talking you can't, about. You can't you can't always do that. Not always you know, possible. it was just if I if I had the opportunity to to leave a track or something without going way out of my way, I don't I would always do it. But many times you can't. Yeah. You know, there's places you just can't. Yeah. That's a hugely important point, Paul. You know, and like you said, that mental reset and to slow down and to really think about the choices that you're making, which exactly, can be difficult yeah. kind of in the heat of the moment, particularly if 
you know, maybe you have spotted something and yeah. you're trying to oh, get over big, there. Big but, excitement. Yeah. But you gotta yeah. you gotta slow yeah. down because yeah. uh And of course those those are the times that guys are probably most likely mm-hmm. to get yep. into trouble when you're very excited, you're chasing something, yep. following whatever it is, you know, that's that's when you're probably most prone to yep. making a mistake. And, you know, and whether you are with somebody in the backcountry, just things like, Okay, you've got an animal down, okay, now you're starting to work on it and you've got your knife out. Yep. Exactly. Just, you just, I mean, you always have to be careful, right? You never want to cut yourself. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it can be exponentially more yeah. a big deal, particularly if you're solo. But if you're by yourself, yeah. yep. you know, in the backcountry, I mean, you only have you to rely on. And if right. you aren't able to stop yeah. some bleeding, that, that's yep. a bad deal. Yeah. Yeah. When you open a box at work, it's just kind of like I do, I open a box at work while I'm eating lunch right. with a phone in my shoulder talking to you across the, you know, but it's yep. like. <laughs> well, and yeah. you're likely to be fatigued, right? And when yeah. when you oh, make tired, when you make poor you're, decisions you're excited, or yeah you might be you might be cold you might be shaking mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. All, all yeah you might be in a hurry yeah. to get back to you know a certain location or yeah. or maybe you don't have you know if you didn't have your spike camp with you or the ability to spend the night you're trying to get back somewhere yeah. because there is you know a weather situation going on and and that's another thing I mean you know and this is kind of contingent on the hunt but. Um, gosh, I can tie everything into bringing a puffy jacket with you, apparently. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but how, when you're out in those landscapes and you're further away from civilization, yeah. I think at some level you have to plan on things going south a little bit. Right. And by that I mean if you can, and it just goes back into gear, and gear's expensive, but if you can uh, carry a lightweight shelter with you, you know, carry some of that you know, survival gear, carry enough clothes with you that you can get through the night. Like I said, even if you're on a warm weather hunt, there's the potential that you oh, might think, have to spend the night. I, and, think, I and, think you should always go out assuming that you might have to spend the night. Have to spend uh, the night. And, you know, when you yep. carry a day pack and you've got a small amount of gear with you, I mean, you should, you should have that in the back of your head. You should never be out with the thought that just you absolutely couldn't spend the night someplace, yeah. you know, and, and have a way to you, start a fire. Yeah. You know, Got you to. talked about yeah. guys getting panicky and one, one of the places guys get in trouble is if, if you're not mentally prepared to do that and ready to do that and it's getting dark and maybe you're a long ways away and mm-hmm. then you tend to push hard, hard, hard. You want to get back to where your camp is or your vehicle is. And that, you know, it's another place you can get into trouble. You know, you can, it gets too dark. You can walk off a rock cliff or you mm-hmm. know, break mm-hmm. your leg or something like that. It's easy to do. So, yeah, don't don't ever be unprepared to sleep out if you mm-hmm. know and you I, have to. And I say these things because I've done it the other way before, and it's not cool, no, at all. No, nope. you know, you've been in some pretty hairy spots because because yeah. of it. One time in Alaska, learned some. Luckily, was able to learn those lessons up there. But yeah, dude, I'll never go out without the ability to spend the night because there's just too many variables yeah. and things can change so quickly. And I'll even go back into a whitetail hunt that I was on in Wisconsin. Bluebird day. Absolutely gorgeous. T-shirt weather. My buddy and I took our bikes in off this railroad grade, got back. It was kind of, we we're kind of hunting like a river type stuff and got back in and got deep. And it was kind of an interesting terrain, you know, lots of like uh, water and beaver ponds to navigate and this, that, the other. And we finally found a spot where like, oh, let's, you know, let's hunt. Ended up passing a pretty nice buck that night. And we met up, you know, you know, saw his headlamp. We met up, and he started walking, and I'm like, dude, where are you going? He goes, I'm going back to the truck. I'm like, you're going the wrong way. And actually, admittedly, GPSs are my friend. I was born pretty much without a sense of direction. So if any of us are hunting together, and I say we should go this way, we go should probably way. go the opposite way. But I, I felt pretty good about this. So we start walking, and again, 
Bluebird Day. Wasn't expecting to go super deep. It was just an afternoon, evening hunt. Yeah. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Didn't bring a way to start a fire. Didn't have rain gear. Didn't have extra clothes. Didn't have my puffy jacket. Like I said, it's just going to be a quick afternoon hunt, right? Well, we get going. It's already dark. Probably the biggest snowflakes I've seen fall out of the sky are raining down on us. We're get a little bit turned around. Didn't have my GPS with me. No cell reception. Just like all the things you don't want to do, right? Yeah. We get to a beaver pond, and uh, which this is another thing. And even though we're kind of getting wet from something, you know, he's like, "Don't get wet." I'm like, "Yeah, we. This is like, you know, not good." <laughs> Long story short, we eventually like we were on the right vector. We were able to navigate our way out of that. But, dude, that could have been really bad. And it was such a benign, like, yeah, innocent yeah. afternoon, beautiful day hunt that really could have gotten bad. Yeah. I think for yeah. a lot of people. Which, which all that could have been mitigated if you just had a, a few of the right things with you. And a puffy jacket. Mm-hmm. And a puffy jacket. I think for a lot of people listening, you may have the notion that a, a Western hunt, quote, unquote, is going to be this extreme mountaineering event in which adrenaline junkie yeah kinda. and and i hunt the dakotas a lot and i get a lot of people be like yeah it doesn't really count it's not really a western hunt and it and I'll, I'll tell you this much to mark's point to to have the the notion in your head that the area that you're entering is as you know benign or innocuous as anything compared to say alaska like where paul and mark have both hunted and, and have told me some amazingly extreme stories the same misfortune can befall you anywhere you go. Absolutely. Whether it's yeah. Wisconsin oh, yeah. or whether it's, whether it's South Dakota. I've spent a night on the prairie unexpectedly. It was not great. Sleeping is not really what you do uh, when you're out there. You just kind of lay there and try to stay warm. Uh, and so it, it can go south really quick. So don't, don't assume that the hunt that you're going on, um, if you're not going to Montana or Colorado or Alaska or Idaho or anything like that, don't assume that it's it's – going to be this soft bunny hunt because I'll tell you the area that you're going to hunt in South Dakota, I've hunted in South Dakota Mm -hmm. and you're a long ways from anywhere. Right. And everything we were talking about, nobody's looking for you unless you tell them to look for you. Yeah. Uh, And you may not have that opportunity. So plan to, to Paul's earlier statement, plan for cautious approach Mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, use reason and logic when you're moving in uh, because whether it's northern Wisconsin or the soft, gentle plains of South Dakota, it can be treacherous. Yeah, in the, in yeah, it's inter- you know an, an interesting story I'll tell you. So when a lot of times when you hunt in the West and you get into some of that terrain, you see, you have a lot of visual clues around it. You can see ridges and peaks and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So a lot of times, some of that country, it's not wildly difficult to sort of identify about where you're at. You can do it a lot of times. But I'll tell you an interesting thing that gets a lot of people. And when I think back to the years that I was guiding. Probably the thing that I was, after having several close calls with it, that paid a lot of attention to was you have a tendency a lot of times in the West to hunt ridges. Ridges make a really, you know, they're really good routes to get around places, to cover ground. You have the ability to sort of look down on things. But when you, and many times your camp will be down below though. Mm -hmm. You you know, a lot of times you want to avoid camping up on a ridge. It's not, it's, it's exposed to weather sometimes you're sort of camping in places that you really might rather be actually able to hunt. When you're up high and you fall off a ridge in a lot of the Rocky Mountain country, what happens is a a ridge will seem like a really easy avenue down. You can sort of see your way down through it. But what catches people is is ridges always have finger ridges that come off them all the way down. And if if you're not paying attention, it's incredibly easy 
to fall off the wrong finger ridge. And by the time you sort of realize what you've done, you've typically dropped, you know, 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet. You're way you're down committed. below where you want it to be. And if you lost your visibility then, you're now you're down in the trees. You can't see around you. It's a phenomenally easy way to get lost. The, a story I can tell you one day, we, we had a sheep on in Idaho, and we killed a really nice ram. And there was myself, another guide, and the client, great guy, you know, tough, fit guy, seemed very savvy about the mountains. And so we were, after we killed this ram, we cut him up, and we were bringing him out with our packs. And so we split him up, and the, the hunter took, he had the part of the meat, he had the horns with him. He was very confident he knew the way down because we'd followed a, a clear-cut ridge that got us up there. And so we stopped, myself and the other guy, to load up the camp and the rest of the stuff on our packs. And he said, do you guys mind if I just continue on down this ridge and I'll meet you down below mm-hmm. at the truck? And what we, you know, it was very clear-cut ridge. And we said, sure, just, you know, go ahead. We'll catch up with you. Well, we loaded up, eventually got down to the truck about two hours later. No sign of the guy, nothing, not a, not a clue where he went. So we dumped all the stuff. We hiked back up, couldn't find any trace of him. Went out. We searched all that afternoon for the guy. Late that evening, he called, and he had went clear down a finger ridge, broke off the wrong finger ridge, dropped down, ended up on the edge of the Salmon River. Holy he God. knew that he had what he had done. He saw lights on the other side, so he swam across the Salmon River with a, a set oh, of sheep horns and oh, meat on his back. He was man. lucky he didn't die, and he was about exhausted, but you know it, it played out well, but it could have been really an ugly ugly thing. And, you know, he did that exact, what seemed like just this easy, quick hike down this nice open yeah. pine ridge, and it, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Nothing's, that, nothing's easy out no. there. I, I no. I know we, we talked a lot about, like, the right gear to bring and how, you know, bad decisions can impact you in safety and stuff like that. The last one I wanted to touch on before we kind of wrapped up. We might even need a part two. Or I know. That's <laughs> what I was so thinking. many things to consider. Know, yeah. if one goes to another. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very possible. Let's see what you got. The last one I really kind of wanted to touch on because especially next weekend when it's going to be real hot, I'm really concerned about game care. You know, mm-hmm. in the event that I do kill something, what the heck do you do when it's 90 degrees and you got you know, meat that can spoil super quick out there. So I killed a buck in 16 in, in northwestern South Dakota, and when I shot him, it was in the mid to upper 70s. And Is this the one that you had hanging for like a week? Eight days. Or eight days. Yeah. Jeez. All right, yeah. And, anyway, and, carry on. Right. So we uh, took this buck, day one of the hunt, great day, wonderful, great deer. And uh, we were we were far enough back, and, and don't ask me why this was, it had not crossed our mind. I don't know what we were thinking. We didn't bring ice. We had nothing. And so shoot this great deer, and um, now I've got all this meat to deal with. So I've got four quarters, I've got a neck, I've got a, you know back straps, I've got trimmings. And so uh, game bags are extremely important. Yep. And uh, I use a couple different kinds now. The one that I was using was a very simple cotton game bag. Uh, it's, it's game bags of Alaska. They're very inexpensive. Yep. They're a good bag. That's what I bought. Yep, good bag, lightweight. And so I put you know a quarter per bag in there, and then I had trimmings per bag. What I ended up doing is in our camp, we camped in kind of the shade of this very large juniper kind of outcropping, right? So it's busting up here, and, and uh, it was north-south facing uh, so that the sun never really hit it. And mm-hmm. so I hung, uh, I hung the head, I hung the cape, I hung five game bags up in that tree. 
and just kind of watched it. Uh, in the evenings, it was in the low 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had good temperature there. And the meat took a good, well, I guess the word I use is pack. Like it, it, it kind of gets a rind on the outside. It's a crust. It, on yeah. Them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I would smell check the meat. I would feel check the meat. Um you know, periodically through the day, if we Just return to camp for like yuck, yeah, if you, it, for slime. Correct. Yes, exactly. Correct. If you feel that the outside of that game bag should be mostly dry, uh, if you feel a slime or if you smell just that, you know, you've all had mm. that thing of roast beef in your fridge that is maybe sat there for too long and you yep. take it as a bad, right. And no fault. Everything was good. So I had a, I had a really ideal situation with weather there in which in the evenings, you know, for eight to 10 hours, it was in the low 30s. Um, during the day, it did that's, get up. That's what saved you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. In the day, it did get up into the into the 60s and 70s, mm. but it was in the shade, and I had really good airflow going through there, yeah. too. So it was kind of uh, it was kind of on a high spot that the, the wind could blow through it and, one, help pull heat off of it, and, two, keep egg-laying insects off there, so mm. like flies, blowflies, things like that. And it ended up being probably the ve- the best venison I've ever eaten. Eight days later. Yeah. Correct. Didn't you say but it looked kind of funny when you? Pull oh, it out? you pull it. It's black. It, you pull it out, and it's like this dark purple black rind on this meat. And so I probably which is not which is not savable meat. You know, no, when it's, when it's, when it's right. done, you trim you that trim off. That right. off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. protective. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say is is the, the question I get sometimes is, do you take the meat off the bone? And if you're going to hang quarters, if it's cool enough, I mean, if it's if it's too hot, a bone in is going to hold a lot of heat. And it's going to spoil your meat from the inside too. Mm-hmm. I, I gambled in saying that it was going to be cool enough in the evening that by the time that those were hung after the first night, I could have I could have assumed that that quarter was going to cool through and through. So I left the bone on. One thing I will say is like having minimal oxygen exposure to that cut of meat is going to help preserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got back home uh, and started trimming it out, my father, who's not a big hunter or anything like that. And I mean, he's like a weekend whitetail hunter, uh, you know, for those, uh, that one weekend a year in Minnesota, we're sitting there trimming this meat out in the, in the kitchen. He's like, dude, I'm not, no way. He's like, this is unsalvageable. I'm like, no, it's fine. <laughs> and so you pro- probably lost like 25% of it just to drying, but underneath that rind, underneath that crust was absolutely dry aged, tenderized, wonderful, delicious venison. Right. Overall, I will tell you, it's probably a safer bet to bring ice and bring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. what you know, yeah, Ryan. Your conditions are perfect. Where, where Eric's hunting in those temps, I mean, odds are you're probably going to have to get that out yeah. relatively quickly. You're yep. not going to be able to. You know, tips that you can use in the field, like Ryan says, um, definitely find shady places. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when you have when you have temperatures at night that are getting down in the 30s, that's that's very helpful. I mean, mm-hmm. that's going to save you. What we would do, you know, we we did a lot of archery elk hunting and killed elk early in the season. And a lot of times we weren't able to get those elk packed out for several days. But when you had those kind of lows at night, you were good. And what you can do in the day is you find a shady spot and then you can, if you cover that meat with an insulating layer during Mm -hmm. the day, you know, even if you have an old sleeping bag or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. if you've killed and you're ready, you know, you don't mind getting some of your gear a little bit bloody, yeah. which probably won't. It'll crust over as we talked about. But during the day, if you cover that meat up and keep it in the shade, you'll mm-hmm. you'll keep that cooler temperature in from the night. Okay. And then as the evening comes around, you pull it off, you let it get exposed to the, you know, to the cool air again. So the other th- you can do if you have, if you have flowing water is you can, you can put meat in water. Mm-hmm. What we would usually do is have a piece of plastic or something, so you, you can mm-hmm. you can kind of keep the meat dry and, and out of the water. But that you know you find a shady spot down low in a creek and do that, and it it'll really cool that meat down. Because water usually gets it gets cool overnight, 
but then it takes so long for water to get warm again during the day that well, it stays kind of cool. In yeah, the and the mountains are what you're going to find is you're going to have these little flowing streams, oh. and they're they're at a constant temperature, and okay. they're usually quite chilly. Um, so they they'll actually do a good job of that. Well, like you said, you know, keep but keeping that meat dry, right? If you, I mean, you definitely want to keep your meat yeah. dry throughout yeah. the process. Yeah, um, you want to keep it, you know, clean. I think you know that's probably intuitive. And and one thing about if you have the ability to leave it in whole quarters, it will stay cleaner. You just got yeah. less surface area exposed right, to right. whatever it may come into contact with. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about creek bottoms, though, Paul. And that yeah. air, if you can hang your meat in a shady spot yeah, in a creek it's, bottom, it's cooler it's air be a little bit cooler. There, yeah. Yep. You know, Ryan talked about though when you have a larger animal like an elk and it's warmer temperatures, yeah. you are probably going to have to bone them out because mm-hmm. you they'll they'll do what they call bone sour and you yep. you'll you know they'll they'll go bad from the inside out. So and correct me if I'm wrong, but a boned out animal is going to be easier to pack into a cooler for the transport back than a boned it, in. Animal. It will be, yeah. Okay. yeah. But you know, it's like Ryan said too. It's it's best if you don't have to do it, then I wouldn't do it because right. you do expose more surface area yep. to bacteria and growth gotcha. and that sort of thing. And the meat will definitely hang better on the bone. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it packs. I, I found packing out multiple quarters at a time, having the structure of the bone yep. in that quarter uh, helps a lot. Uh, and I've, I did, I, I boned out an entire mule deer and stuffed it in my pack one time. And what I found is like, as I'm walking, like the hammering action of footsteps is causing that meat to settle. Yeah, it does. It turns into a great big heavy ball down yeah. at the very bottom yeah. of your and back. Like, yeah. it, it just flows the path of least resistance yeah. in your yeah, back. Exactly. And pretty soon I'm like, did I add weight? What is happening like, here? Yeah. I've, got, I've got four bowling balls at <laughs> yeah. the bottom yeah. of my pack. And yeah. they're just, they continue going down with gravity. But yeah. uh, it's, yeah. circum- it's circumstantial, right? Uh, bring ice, bring a good cooler. Yeah. Other pack essentials, you know, again, I, I found myself early on in, in doing this, bringing way too much stuff, but a good knife, and not like four knives, but like a good knife. A way to sharpen it. Yep, yep. Uh, and that's not a river rock. I've tried that too in my youth. You know, basic first aid kit, nothing serious. I mean, you're not yep. going to be out there being a field surgeon. So if it requires more than a few gauze, you're probably in trouble. At that yeah. point in time, it's time to start cutting up clothing and putting it over a wound. Hitting, and hitting the SOS button. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> so I think we have a tendency, especially when we start talking about first aid in the field, to like overpack, like bring a, a full med kit or, or like a, a, a bug out bag full of splints, tourniquets, chest depressurization things. <laughs> what, are Arguably not required for for this just because if you do get in a scenario where it is severe enough that you can't stop mm-hmm. it with a few gauze we've got bigger problems right um, exactly uh i i carry a life straw uh the little water yep. filter um it's a it's a direct to source thing so you're not like you're not pumping it into anything if you find a pool that's not full of stagnant floaties uh you can you can drink out of there it's a pretty pretty good thing it might not taste the best but at least it's going to do a, a pretty good job of getting uh rid of some microorganisms and, and uh, particulates suspended in the water that might make uh, drinking water a, a scary proposition. What is that that you can get Giardia from that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Giardia's, oh, you get E. coli, you can get, I mean, a whole slew of things you don't want. Oh, gosh, what else? Yeah, water water filtration is a whole, that's almost a discussion. That was oh, one I had written down. down it is. I figured I'm like, that's a different Like problem. I said, we need, I feel like yeah. we need to do a part two because there's yeah. that. I, I wanted to ask more questions about even just the, the hanging game, too, right. that yeah. we were talking about. Yeah, well, it's, I agree. That's, anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, keep it, for me anyway, I guess, I keep it pretty basic. To, to Paul's point and to Mark's point earlier, if you look at that when you're in your pack thing and be like, can I use this? 
you can probably justify it if you say, will I use this? Mm-hmm. You probably won't. Right. Um, so usually it gets pitched. I've, I've watched my gear roster diminish exponentially as years go on. And uh, now I compile it in a PDF, or excuse me, an Excel file, and, and it's a checklist that I do at the beginning of, of every hunt and season. And, and any, every year you'll trim the fat on that too. But um, Well, you'll, you'll trim and you'll add and yeah, improve. It, and, it changes, yeah. you know. Um, a good tarp, which you have written down. Yep. Oh, uh, rope. Oh, yeah. yeah, rope. Rope's a good one. I used to bring like 500 feet of paracord. Like I had paracord <laughs> in every pocket, right? Because I was like, I may need to... I may need to erect some sort of huck fin raft to like yeah. get, get myself out of an area. Now I have enough rope to say hang a few quarters or act as like a, a guy line for a tarp if I need to make yep. an emergency shelter. Uh, for the next episode of this, Paul will tell a good story about extracting a mountain goat with paracord. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it came in very, very handy. Matter of <laughs> fact, it, it helped extract me, as a matter of fact. So. There's your uh, teaser for next episode, right. folks. Yep. yep. I think I even covered that in one of our newsletter articles. Actually, yeah, we talked have, about yeah. some yeah. of these same things in, yep. a while ago. Yeah. Mark, Mark steals a puffy jacket. Uh, Paul's is an adequate amount of paracord. So I, I carry that in there as well. And then snacks. Food, yeah. food's a big, big topic, oh big my discussion. Gosh, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, definitely, yep. Yep. absolutely. Um, but that one you can go into the weeds on too. Um, I had, I had a guy I used to guide with, and he'd, he'd always carry a can of dog food around with him, which we always joked about. And, uh, but the, the idea was he would never eat that dog food unless it was like it was life or death. He had yeah. that can of dog food to get him through. Maybe it's is that like a is that like a gauge like. If I'm not eating the dog food, I'm okay. I think <laughs> so. If I'm eating the dog food, it's time to get it's, out. I'm in trouble, yeah. Until yeah. that one guy in your camp gets in your pack and he's like, oh, cool, what's this? Some sort yeah. of weird kipper snack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gobbling that down. Case of emergency, break dog <laughs> camp. Oh, man. Food, food I think <laughs> if given the choice of the dog food or hitting my, oh, SOS. my SOS button, I think I'm hitting the button. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But still not a bad idea to put a little Alpo yeah. in your pack. So yep. just, just a single can of Alpo. Would yeah. Uh, and fire starters. We talked about this. Mini Bic lighters, they're, they don't weigh anything. They're fairly waterproof. Um, you can put them in multiple pockets. They are 69 yeah. cents at the gas station. Um, I don't think you can have too many mini Bic lighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have two in my pack at all times, and then I stash them in and about my truck. Have and, one, at least one, on your person yeah. that you know you're going to like yeah. no matter what happens, like it will be with you. Yes. Right. Yep. Yep. And then sunglasses. I hunt with sunglasses. I yeah. don't know. That's a thing for me. Yeah. If I don't have my glasses, I'm like I'm doomed. Big well, time. It, until until they break. Yeah, that's true. That's the only rub with that. And I guess you know, just kind of transitioning into wrapping this up. I mean, it's interesting that we talked about a lot of different stuff here, obviously, but the things that I have written down as takeaways are not, and this all wraps a bow on it, gets back to where we started talking about things that are realistic and eat and more affordable things to, that you need before getting into it. I have stuff like headlamps, a tarp, piece of plastic, knife sharpener, first aid kit, rope, and lighters as big things to have mm-hmm. that you don't want to forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those and like are real. A couple layers of merino wool and a Yeah, exactly. And a rain gear. And rain yep. gear. Rain gear. But yeah. these, you know, like, these core items, I guess, are things that I think are really going to make stuff easier, more attainable. And at the end of the day, you know, a tarp, a tarp or a piece of plastic, you can sleep under a tarp. You can you wrap c- yourself up in it on a cold yep. night. Yeah. You can throw yeah. meat on, on a sheet of plastic when you're, you know, hopefully boning something out. Yep. Keep so, it clean. Yep. So just little things like that, I think. I, these are the takeaways that I wanted. So I'm glad. Yeah. Part two is going to be good. good. Yeah. And hopefully we can see how this goes. Yep. 
So I, I oh, hope yeah. You, yeah, I hope you make it back too, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I really hope you see how this goes. <laughs> oh, man. <That's> <laughs> Perfect. Cool. Well, what do you say? All right, we'll wrap up part one here. As always, thanks, everybody, for listening. And shoot us any questions, if you have any. Hit up Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast to see some behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, some other cool photos related to what we're talking about here on the podcast. Maybe you'll see some photos of Eric that he takes out sure there on so. his hunts, too. We'll yep. definitely have to post those yeah, up. Yeah, we'll need so. we'll need a picture of Eric's pack. See what see what's in that yeah, pack. Yeah, yeah, that's what we goes out do. there. Yeah. Yep, yep. Now the pressure is on. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All righty, everybody. Uh, thanks again, and happy hunting and shooting. We'll see you next time. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field. Or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.